Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am streaming live from beautiful downtown Monanchi right now. And if you hear um, the sound of espresso machines in the back, that is why, because I'm in a coffee shop. And I'm super excited to have uh, Dr. Lindsay Elmore back on our show. Uh, we had a late uh, minute cancellation from Dr. Jack Wilson, um, natural cardiologist, who is going to reschedule me back on our show and talk about statins and mountain biking. And um, Dr. Moore is a, Elmore is a fellow pharmacist, and we're going to be talking about drug pricing today. Um, hot topic of mine, and we're going to see um, if we have any solutions. Lindsay, welcome back to our show. Hey, thank you so very much for having me back. Yeah, so tell us, I know you have a, you know, last time you we were on the podcast a few weeks ago, um, drug pricing is kind of your hot button. Um, so tell us a little bit about the history of that and, you know, where we go from here. So I, I am a huge advocate for reform in drug pricing, and that is because the United States is the only wealthy nation in the world that does not have governmental oversight on drug pricing. We allow pharmaceutical companies to charge whatever that they want for, for um, medications and vaccines. And the problem with it is, is that it creates a very easy system to impoverish those who need medical care and it diverts money continually up towards the top on the backs of sick individuals that deserve access to care. So if we look at the Institute for Clinical and Economic Research, they have suggested that if we bring drug pricing to within 20% of all other wealthy nations in the world, we would be able to drop the annual expenditure on drugs by $500 billion. $500 billion could be saved. And we know that the drug pricing negotiations are not easy, right? One of the reasons that they're not easy is that because snuck somewhere in the hundreds and hundreds of pages of the Affordable Care Act is a one-liner that says that the U.S. government does not have the power to negotiate drug prices. So the Biden administration right now is looking at 10 drugs that they are hoping to bring down the prices of. Things like Eliquis, like Xarelto, um, Stellara, expensive drugs that have the potential to save billions and billions of dollars. However, if we would do it for all drugs, we would be saving half a trillion dollars every single year. It's honestly, it, it seems so easy to do, but there is so much money between politics and big pharma 
that it makes these negotiations really much more difficult. So the the negotiations are looking to save millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars, um, $50 billion in Medicare, but we could be saving 500. It also, with the Inflation Reduction Act, it also caps how much people with Medicare have to pay out of pocket for their medications. The problem is it's a $2,000 annual cap. And considering that 61% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, asking people to spend $2,000 out of pocket annually for medications that they have been told by their prescriber are medically necessary, potentially life-saving, it's, it's, it's such an unfair and rigged system. And we've seen it over and over and over again. I think probably the most famous case of this is um, Martin Shkreli, who was the CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals. And he was dubbed the most hated man in America because he increased the price of a life-saving um, injection by 5,000% as the CEO. He was actually convicted in 2017 of defrauding investors on two different hedge funds and was trying to use the pharmaceutical industry to pay back all of these debts. He was in prison for seven years. He was released a little bit early and yet the damage was done. I mean, this guy was once a multimillionaire with Picassos on his wall, drinking thousand dollar bottles of wine. Um, he purchased World War II memorabilia, um, letters written by Charles Darwin. And in, in a very brazen move, he bought the only copy, the, the, the Wu-Tang Clan made one copy of an album and sold it to the highest bidder, and it went to Screlly. And they have since apologized because realizing that he was withholding life-saving medications um, from people who need them desperately um, was just so un ethical, just so gross and not what we need. You know, we look back at the history of the pharmaceutical industry and when George Merck founded Merck, he actually thought that they should be a not-for-profit business because he said, if we're creating medications that are going to save people's lives, why on earth would we be worried about making money on that? Um, Jonas Salk, after um, after isolating what became the first vaccine, he actually said when people asked, like, what are you going to charge for this? He actually said, you can't patent the sun. You can't patent the sun, which I thought was a very, very interesting um 
way to look at what are we doing here? Because if you are creating um, a vaccine that is going to prevent illness, why would you hold that back from people? And why would you put the artificial barrier where you need to pay for the products? The pharmaceutical industry also fails to meet all four of Adam Smith's um, criteria for what is a free market economy, right? We don't have the ability to have good competition. The law of supply and demand is off because you know, the the pharmaceutical companies can make as much as they want and the demand is dependent on the prescriber, right? So because we don't have um, competition and we don't follow the law of supply and demand, and we also don't follow the law of self-interest where it's up to us to decide what is it that we want to be purchasing for ourselves, it also does not meet this, um, it doesn't meet the criteria for a free market economy. And so we fail on every level to show why we don't have good pricing on drugs. And it goes back to the very beginning of the industry. And I love the the free market um analogy because that is very true and i think that's the biggest problem in fact i I wrote a book about it and if you um look at my book i mean the the thing that caused the problem in in healthcare is is just that is that we don't we don't have a free market in general and um and the part of that problem is is you know you talk about you know the government getting involved to, to do price um, controls or whatever that is. But in reality, they're the ones that already control the price. Medicare is what controls the price of most healthcare. Let's face it. And, and most insurers follow Medicare for things that are covered and for, for, um, you know, pricing. And, and that's one of the reasons that the price of drugs is so much because there's not a free market. The consumer's not paying the bill. Somebody else is paying the bill. So, and, and let's face it, 80% of the, 80% of the, of, of healthcare is funded by the government, a state, federal, some kind of local program funded by the government. So um, there's no free market involved because the government is paying for most of it, yet we are going to expect them to try to save $500 billion. I just don't think it's going to happen. You know, I mean, most of us who have been around the pharmaceutical industry for a while, we're cynics at this point. Um, and it's it's just it's a huge ship to try to turn. It's a huge ship to try to steer. Um, I can't recall the quote exactly, but um, President Obama, when he was coming up with the Affordable Care Act, basically said, I really wanted to wrangle this and show that we could strong arm this industry as opposed to taking a more conciliatory approach, which is 
what we ended up doing. We took a more conciliatory approach. We did not get insurance to every American. Um, we did not control drug pricing. And in fact, we made it harder to, um, to look at what is a fair price of, of, of a drug. And, you know, you look at, um, a drug like insulin, right? So insulin has an interesting history. Back in the day, there was only recombinant insulin. And recombinant insulin is an animal-based product. You just basically take an animal pancreas and just force it to kind of crank out insulin. And then you harvest the insulin, you put it in a vial and somebody takes it, okay? Then what happened is Pharma comes in and they create the insulin analogs. And the insulin analogs are really just about all the ones that we know at the moment. Like if you think about what are the insulins on the market, insulin analogs are the things like our like our glargine, our um, insulin lenti, it's the insulin asparts, insulin lispros that are working um, either for a very long period of action or a um, very short period of action. And then there's a few that have intermediate durations of action. Well, what the drug companies instructed their uh, their salespeople to do was to go out into different clinics and tell the physicians that the new insulin analogs were safer and more effective. And so what they, and, and less allergenic. Okay. So they said, well, the recombinant insulins are, are animal-based products. Therefore they're going to be more allergenic. We have greater control over the duration of action over the uh, over the insulin analogs versus the recombinant insulins. And so they were able to say, look, we can prevent hypoglycemia while getting better consistency in the insulin levels along the way. So they're saying, look, it's safer. It's more effective. It's less allergenic. And then... After they convinced physicians that this was indeed true with no evidence to back up that the new insulin analogs were any less allergenic, any more effective, or any safer at preventing side effects like hypoglycemia, they then 10x or even 100x the price of the insulin analogs compared to the old recombinant insulins. It, it, insulin is a great example, and I'm glad you brought that up. And um, first of all, you know, I got to say that I'm a little bit embarrassed that I I, I bought into that. We I all did. The, yeah, we all I did. The, yep, I bought into the Lyspro being quicker acting and, and you know, Lantus being longer acting and it's the way to go. Um, when reality in 1983, like you say, um, you know, insulin like pork and beef insulin first came out in like the 1920s and life saving, you know, and it was from, you know, for type one diabetics that, you know, couldn't put on any muscle mass at all because they couldn't absorb glucose, absorb glucose from their blood and life saving. And then fast forward 1983, Eli Lilly comes out with um, E. coli recombinant DNA technology. So they basically made an exact copy of human insulin using um, Escherichia coli bacteria. And it was brilliant. It was really the first biotech drug. And so 
the human humulin R, humulin regular insulin that Eli Lilly made in 1983, and later Novolin copied it, um, but they used yeast DNA um, technology, um, is an exact copy of the insulin in our body. Regular insulin from, from Eli Lilly, humulin R, Novolin R, exact copies of the insulin that's in our body. So these drug companies got me to believe and many doctors and many pharmacists like yourself, that big pharma can make an insulin better than our bodies can make it. I, I, I mean, seriously, I mean, I don't know how I ever believe that now. And here's the, the speaking of free markets, um, human in human R are over the counter. You can buy them without a prescription. Guess what? Um, Novolin, Novolin in Novolin R, you can buy at Walmart for 20 five dollars a vial why it's over the counter so it's not covered on any insurance um now unfortunately endocrinologists are guilty and most doctors that treat diabetes are guilty about believing the scam that you know those aren't good insulins mm -hmm. um, so like you say i don't know what lantus is now but it was 20-fold difference you know um quite a few years ago you know it was like 500 dollars a vial so, but here again, the over-the-counter insulin wasn't covered by insurance, so people are paying cash. So all of a sudden, it's $25 a vial. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. how free markets work. Get insurance companies out of, out of, out of health care, and all of a sudden, the prices drop. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is truly extraordinary how we allow drug companies to charge anything that they want um, for for drugs. And there's there's one really special population of drugs. Um, they're they're called orphan drugs. And on the surface, orphan drugs seem amazing, right? These are medications that are used to treat very rare and life-threatening conditions, all right? So they're they're to treat really very rare conditions. But the problem is there's no incentive for drug companies to make drugs for these very rare disease states where they simply don't have enough customers to create a return on investment. So what we did is we have this Orphan Drug Act that helps to bring drugs for ultra rare disease states to market. But then because we don't have governmental oversight on drug pricing in the United States, we allowed Big Pharma to set the prices of 30, 40, 50, 70, $100,000 for these medications. Because from pharma's perspective, they're like, yeah, but we had to run this clinical trial that cost $2 million or whatever. And we have to recoup that money. And it's like, dude, you're you're making a fortune off of other medications. Can you not just not have this huge profit line? Why is it never enough? Why is it never enough to have money over here that you're making money? And then, okay, yeah, we've got this subset of drugs that we actually lose money on. And that's the way this works because what if 
the pharmaceutical industry had some ethics about the way that they're doing things. And so these orphan drugs are biologics and drugs that are to treat really rare disease states. So companies get tax credits for their clinical trials. They get exemption from the um, user fees that typically go into applying for um, drug approval. And they get an extended patent of up to seven years of market exclusivity after the production of the drug. Meanwhile, families are struggling to afford these drugs. I mean, you look at even 2016 pricing of drugs that are used to treat, you know, hypophosphatemia or leptin deficiency in lipodystrophy, $70,000 a month, $70,000 a month. In what realm of reality is that even a possibility for any American at any point? Meanwhile, the companies are making billions and billions and billions of dollars off of their cardiovascular medications, and they are literally asking the American people who need these treatments for rare diseases to go bankrupt getting drugs that they have been told will save their life. It's untenable. Well, and like you say, the government caused it with the Orphan Drug Act. Mm -hmm. And... Again, the pro- what the drug companies are relying on, they, they, they know the average person is not going to pay $70,000 a month for a drug, let alone, I mean, really, honestly, even $2,000 a month. So, again, they're looking for that patient to be have some kind of third party paying for this. So some insurance, most likely it's it's some kind of government insurance that's paying for it. So basically the taxpayers are getting screwed. That's really the, the biggest problem. And, and because of that, I don't have a lot of optimism that, that it's going to get fixed anytime soon um, because there's really no incentive um, for big pharma or for the government to change it because they just got an unlimited expense account in the taxpayers. Right. Right. Well, (laughs) if we maintain that we can just keep printing money out of thin air, (laughs) like there is a limit to the amount of money. Like I, I I remember one time I had a guy who was, um, threatening me with a cease and desist letter. And he said, I have unlimited funds to fight you on this. And I, and I wrote him back and I was like, even Warren Buffett has a limit to the funds. Like everything has a limit and it's simply naive to think that we can fix the problem of American debt by just Printing more money—it's it's, it's well, worthless, right? And you know, my wife brought when when Obamacare passed. What was it? 2010, 2012. Um, I was really disappointed, and so was she. Um, but she brought up a really good point. You know, this was ten years ago, and I think back then, I think the national debt was only like thirteen trillion, and now it's sixty trillion plus unfunded liabilities. I mean, here's a here's a reality. Yes. You can't just keep printing fiat money. I mean, the, the government is really, that's one of the things they're good at is printing money. Um, 
And the reality of it is, here's the honest to gosh truth, Lindsay. And I, I'm I'm a patriot, and I don't want to be apathetic. I'm just realistic. And let's face it, we can't afford what we're doing now. We're, we're broke now. And when no. you look at the numbers, we're just broke now. So we right. can't afford Social Security. We can't afford Medicare right now. So um, it's got to stop. It's mm-hmm. got to stop eventually. Well, I was interviewing um, James Maskell last week, and he was talking about the differences between the British healthcare system and the American healthcare system. And, you know, the British healthcare system is more socialized. All of the payments are on the the government. And he said, but they're both going to go bankrupt. They're both going to go bankrupt because there is no there is no way that the pharmaceutical first approach will ever create a healthy population. It's never going to create a healthy population. And so what James works on, he's a health economist. So he works on how do we create interventions that actually are making people healthier that that insurers want to pay for. You have to be able to show the insurers that they are saving money with these interventions. And, you know, I'd like to think that we can get there to where the health insurance companies are actually saying like, no, we're going to, you know, incentivize gym memberships instead of statin medications, or like we're going to incentivize, um, you know, having, having a hundred dollars extra a week for food, whatever it is. But James is working on it as far as like, how do we show that there actually might be a better way of approaching healthcare? Because if you start knocking on the door of cannibalizing the profits of big pharma, you're screwed. You're very much screwed. You have to get their buy-in in order to transform this system. And the way that we get their buy-in is by doing exactly what we're doing right now and educating the public about just how badly the American taxpayer is getting ripped off by the pharmaceutical industry. And, and that's the key. Um, the key and the, the goal of this podcast is to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health. You are exactly right, Lindsay. If people are knocking on a doctor's door or knocking on a pharmacist's door all the time to, to um, look for them, to treat them, to treat their health issues, I get it. You know, there's going to be acute things that come up. But ultimately, we as people... And we as healthcare professionals have to educate people to take charge of their own health. Mm-hmm. And largely, you know, let's face it, 85% of all diseases that you see chronically, you know, whether it be reflux or whether it be type 2 diabetes or whether it be hypertension, um, they are lifestyle related. And they do not need a drug to fix them. And I don't care what study you show me that drugs make them better. They might change some numbers, you know, um, in the short term, but long term, they don't decrease long. They don't increase longevity, and they do not de- increase quality of life. In fact, decrease quality. So, ultimately, people people have to take charge of their own health. And it wasn't that long ago, Lindsay, that you know, seventy years ago. That's not that long ago. Most people weren't on twenty different medications. I mean. You know, I mean, they, they just no. weren't, medications weren't for chronic disease. You had antibiotics and 
you had pain meds more for, you know, acute type things, not these chronic things, which I mean, big pharma is just having a heyday with this. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, we created all of the disease states, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. We created them all. Right. Um, And so, and it was, it was intentional. Like, you know, the, the Oxycontin crisis and Purdue Pharma, um, what people don't understand is those guys are third generation in the game of big pharma. And so the, you know, the, the Arthur Sacklers, the Mortimer Sacklers far predated the Richard Sacklers of the world. And Arthur Sackler was the first person to say, I am going to create a billion dollar drug. I am going to create the first billion dollar drug. And what he came up with was the first ever benzodiazepine. So it was, you know, for those of you that don't know, these are your sedatives that help you to calm down the Ativans, the Clonopins, the Xanaxes of the world. Okay. So the, I think the first one was Librium. I believe the first first one was Librium in 1950-something. The first one was Librium, and he marketed it as Mommy's Little Helper. Now Mommy can get through the day, and I'm like sitting there going like, at what point in human history did women need sedatives to raise children? Like, get out of here with that misogynistic marketing. I cannot. But he did it. He created the first billion-dollar drug. We just normalize it and we just went with it. It's like, well, you know, I mean, it's a prescription drug, so it's okay. We, I mean, we wouldn't accept it with non-prescription drugs if people are medicating themselves, but it's prescription drugs, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, they, you know, they use it. For, I, I use it for sleep or my doctor prescribes it for sleep. So what? We're just going to dope everybody up so they can get through the day? That, that, that's ridiculous. It is. It is ridiculous. It is absolutely and like you say, ridiculous. Big Pharma creates another, I have a good friend, Ben Fuchs. He's a little bit older than me. And he figured out in pharmacy school back in the 80s that it was a racket. And this is what he said. He said, Big Pharma creates another bullshit diagnosis so they can treat it. And 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 you know what, Lindsay, we talked about statins a few, a few weeks ago. Think about high cholesterol. Mm-hmm. That's a bullshit diagnosis that, that Big Pharma's made billions on. It's a bullshit diagnosis for sure. <laughs> You know, I mean, this is this is the difference in Doe's versus poems. It's the difference in Doe's versus poems. Like, what are we chasing here? If we're chasing this isolated number of the LDL, that's just a disease oriented endpoint. Like, who cares? Who cares what the number is? You care if you have a heart attack or a stroke or die. That's a patient oriented piece of evidence that matters. And so we have to look at these clinical trials where we're going like, well, wait a minute. Okay. So it lowered my LDL, but there was no difference in heart attack. There was no difference in stroke. There was no difference in death. And as we discussed in the last time, the ASCOT trial, if you stratify out primary prevention of cardiovascular disease in women, women on statins fare worse than women who are not on statins. It's a problem. It's a major problem. Big problem. Big problem. I know you got to run, Lindsay. Uh, We're wrapping this podcast up and I so appreciate you um, being on our podcast last minute, uh, we're going to definitely have you on again. You're going to be our go-to person. I, I love, I love your wisdom, and I love that you help us realize our goal, which is to mm-hmm. educate, and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. So, thank you so much, Lindsay, for being on our show today. 
Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate being right. here. And listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday to our regularly scheduled podcast, 1230 to 130 Pacific Standard Time. We'll see you then. Thank you.